Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Faith That Does Justice podcast, the official podcast of campus ministry at John Carroll University. Join us this semester as we hang out with some of your favorite faculty and staff as we try to figure out what it means to live out a faith that does justice. My name is Terrell Cisan, and I'm joined by my colleagues today, Salo Redesno and Ann McGinnis. Salo, how's it going today? It goes well. Uh, we are feeling incredibly creative at the center, and so that always makes me really happy. And it's October, and it's time for scary movies, so I'm always really into horror. Uh, so I'm in, I'm in a good place right now, yes. Excellent. And how are you today? I'm doing great, Terrell. It's a beautiful day out, sitting on my patio. So all is good. Happy to be here. Well, good, good, good. I'm excited for this episode because um, I've known Saul for a while. I mean, this is my my third time back to John Carroll, and I, I knew Saulo, um during what I call my second tour <laughs> as a resident <laughs> minister. Um, and he is uh, the director of the Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion. Um, so I've got to see his work in so many different stages. Um, when I was a resident minister, um, when he was starting out, um, from afar as an alumni and then in the return I think what 10 years later is it nine or ten years later time flies <laughs> so we're here to just ask him some questions about his journey and uh, we're humbled that you're um, you're willing to share with us some of your stories um, with students and with the good work of diversity and inclusion at the university so um, the first question is always kind of like an origin story question can you tell us a little bit about um, your spiritual background or your religious background. Um, what's going on there? Sure. Um, so um, I grew up Catholic and also my family is Salvadoran. And so um, Catholicism and Christianity are kind of dominant uh, belief systems in El Salvador. And uh, but growing up, we would go to mass every Sunday. My parents were very involved with the different types of um, uh, migrant groups and ethnic groups within the church. Um, we grew up in a very active um, Latinx population. And so lots of the churches that we belonged to um, had different kind of um, groups based off your uh, uh, your nationality. And so I learned a lot about the different ethnic groups that make up the Latinx diaspora. And, um, you know, I went through, got baptized, confirmed. And then, um, you know, I'm not a practicing Catholic now, but I do find myself being a cultural Catholic, meaning that I still celebrate a lot of the same holidays and observe a lot of the different um, just practices when you're a Catholic, because that's just part of my identity. Um, and I do go to mass, um, but not as often. So I think you all call folks like that cafeteria Catholics. And so, um, you know, I right now do have a lot of different ways to experience God and um, make meaning of my life. Um, I do believe uh, in a spiritual um, realm something bigger than us does exist and provides you know directions and advice and um, 
that is a mixture of all of the different kind of um, relationships I had growing up with friends and family who practiced different religions or, or didn't have uh, a faith or religion background. Um, so I'm sort of a hodgepodge. Um, so I find myself uh, identifying as someone who is uh, spiritual. Yeah. If you could expand, because um, I think there's, there's a lot of beauty in, in expanding um, your, your notion of spirituality. What is, what is, um, what does it look like in like, what does your spirituality look like? This is like, uh, not the best way to word it, but what does it look like on a good day? And what does mm -hmm. it look like on the best day, uh, your spirituality? So I feel like I experience um, a higher being or God when I'm outdoors. And um, I grew up in uh, the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles in California. And being part of the outdoors was always something that was um, important for our family. Um, we grew up working poor and uh, parks were a big piece of where we would do our recreation. Um, we didn't camp, we weren't campers, but we would go and hang out and uh, picnics were a big thing for our family because it would get us out into the fresh air. And I started admiring trees. And I remember my mom would always share with us that um, life exists from not just us as humans, but also in the trees and the plants and the flowers. And so I connected very closely with um, just things that grow. And so now um, having a garden myself that I try to, you know, cultivate and also have some harvest, um, it's neat to be able to see something um, like a seed, um, you know, so good germinate and sprout and you know become a plant and sort of see that entire cycle of life because that's almost like what we are one of my favorite um uh songs that they would play at church was always about the mustard seed i think it's called the mustard seed yeah. or it's very biblical the mustard seed it, it, i don't remember if it was the wheat or mustard seed but it was something so small that would give so much Yes. And so a good day for me when it comes to my faith is when I'm outside and I notice things like falling leaves because it's almost like a little secret that the universe is saying, hey, I see you. This is for you. I think I love that. I think that when trees do that, when they change the color of their leaves and you don't notice, I think if I was a tree, it would piss me off. Here <laughs> I am. Uh, changing colors wow. for us to witness and so it forced me to stop uh, you know looking down all the time and look up mm. and it's something that um, one of my favorite movies um, the color purple that's one of the lines in that movie is um, God must be really upset or pissed off when we don't notice the color purple in nature and so I think that's true for a lot of colors so that's a, on a good day. It's when I noticed those things. Thank you. That, I was like just looking. <laughs> I have like some trees, like some red and yellow trees in the background. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Paolo, do you, and if so, how do you consider your work to be spiritual? Mm -hmm. I think the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion requires just a gathering of people of, um, 
at least for my office, we need students, staff and faculty where they're at. And I think anything that involves bringing people to, um, you know, connect with one another and grow alongside each other, um, that's God's work uh, because it involves a sense of care, not just in the transactional, but the transformational. I think of transfer, uh, transactional relationships as a student coming to us with a need and sort of, you know, like an ATM, you problem solve with the student and they leave. Um, whereas what I see our work is more transformational. When we have a student come in and we follow them and they follow us too, because we change. So hearing Jarrell remember me when I was, um, you know, as a program coordinator or an assistant director, I've grown myself and students have witnessed that. And so uh, it's a deep sharing of our lives. Um, I mean, it's a school, so there's a big piece and attention to the academic, um, our academic identity. Um, but I think God's work is um, really building those relationships and cultivating them so that those relationships don't stop at graduation, they continue afterwards. And I see that, um, in how our alums share stories with me. Um, I see that in our alums inviting me to things like their wedding. Um, and we're just reaching out to say, hello and how are you? A lot of folks reached out um, in the spring to just see how folks were experiencing um, the school pivoting to a remote learning environment and knowing that there were other things that were impacting the work of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion that were not COVID-related, but complicated things. And so um, that's how I see um, this work as God's work in that it includes everyone. I think God is too big to fit in one religion. Um, it's one of my favorite buttons. And if uh, folks know me, I have a big wall of buttons. And um, that's been one that stands out to me the most. And I think for us to, for me to practice my faith involves me loving and caring for all. Mm. And that's also very Catholic. I mean, the Nostra Aetate document says that, you know, God revealed God's self in all religions in all <laughs> time, you know, not just to Catholicism. So it's also within the Catholic tradition. One of the things I learned from Dr. Shivam again in theology and religious study was that the word Catholic means universal. Ooh. And so one of those things that that's something I didn't know until I got to John Carroll. And so I think every year I learned something um, different about um, not only the religion that is Catholicism, but also the practice of Catholicism, especially within, I'm always very interested in, um, how um, folks make meaning um, and sometimes that comes from uh, your religion or faith and other times it comes from other you know identities um, but that I think that's why I still continue to uh, identify as a cultural Catholic <laughs> that's beautiful thank yeah. you just a comment building off of Anne like you're it's just it's funny how I see things working just with Catholicism and just the amount of people that don't go to church or are disaffiliated and um, um, the words coming out of your mouth and the spirit 
that's like being communicated through, you know, the computer is so Catholic to me and so beautifully Catholic to me. Um, because just like you said, I mean, God is bigger than anything that we could ever imagine or categorize or, you know, that type of thing, which is the heart of what I think Catholicism is, which is what you said. So, and when, when you said, um, when you said the term cafeteria Catholic, it like hurt my heart a little bit because, you know, that is something that Catholics do say, but it is kind of like the worst version of, of, of what our role to be Catholic is, you know, um, it's just like that in, in that comment is like accusing someone of picking and choosing is somebody up that same person picking and choosing. Um, so I love the spirit of Catholicism in the sense that like it's much bigger and it's much more mysterious and it, it does include all people. So um, I guess that ties into my question. The thing that, the, the thing that gets me to stay is that spirit of all people and this message and this message of love, uh, the spirit of inclusivity for all people. That's, that's like the mission is to bond people together. Um, so with all the stuff that you mentioned, with all the background that you mentioned, my question is, um, why did you choose and why do you stay at JCU? Uh, I think I, well, I chose JCU because I fell in love with the campus and JCU students. Um, uh, it was 2011. I was job searching and, um, I kept on getting an announcement for this program coordinator position at a campus that I'd never heard of. Uh, that was a Catholic Jesuit, which was a concept I didn't know. Um, and Cleveland, which was a town or a city in a state that I've never been to. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, I kept on getting it and I thought, well, you know, I've gotten it like maybe 15 times, maybe something is sending me a message. And I do believe in those kinds of experiences where the universe might kind of be winking at you. Um, and so I thought it doesn't hurt for me to apply for this position. And so going through the phone interview process and actually visiting campus, I did fall in love with the size of the campus and also its mission. The mission has always been something that I've identified with. Um, uh, it, it was a good blend of position um, and the opportunities to grow and use all of my strengths um, in diversity work. Um, the school was looking to reestablish its cultural center. Um, and so the opportunity to create and cultivate, I feel like that's been my go-to word in this interview, uh, was strong and something not uh, often possible in most positions. Oftentimes you go into a center that's been established, but what we had an opportunity with, with my DEN director to do is really start not from scratch, but be able to take in what worked and, um, you know, elevate the work and expand, you know, using our own personalities and interests. Um, I became director in 2016 and I applied for that position or that my current position because of the opportunities that I um, sought to expand the office and also not expand in the um, cultural events and programs that we offer, but also in the staff 
And so uh, I became very interested in managing diversity professionals and in um, really enriching their professional development so that they could run diversity centers in the future. Um, it's been um, really a dream job to be able to have um, undergraduate students, graduate students, um, early um, student affairs professionals um, and seasoned professionals uh, and interact with them in um, meaningful ways um, and see them grow. I think that's what happens when you stay at a position for um, you know, long enough to see change. Diversity work is often very slow and I find myself as having a role of a, um, an archivist. I, I used to work in a museum and I learned uh, the importance of making sure that um, teaching objects could come from anywhere. And so artifacts like our flyers to our um, t-shirts are all things that communicate what was important that semester that year. Yeah. and the challenges that also come from it. And so I knew that one thing that was difficult when I first started was that there was no one place where this history lived. And so I found it to be my responsibility as director to be able to build a foundation to then, um, you know, hand that off when it's time for me to leave John Carroll. Because I do have plans to do that um, eventually. I do want to go back to school and earn my doctorate. And um, I know that the work uh, will continue. Um, and I think that's part of the responsibility of someone in any position is to be able to pass the baton and say to the next generation or someone else, um, here's sort of um, what was accomplished. Um, and then get out of the way so that that person could then sort of grow and um, take over in terms of their leadership and style. Um, so I think what's kept me at John Carroll has been the spirit of camaraderie um, among staff and also with faculty. I have a really great relationship with faculty. Um, they've been, um, a lot of my teaching opportunities have come from working with faculty who then saw potential for me to teach and not only just bring me in to teach one credit courses, but um, also teach three credit courses. And so um, I've grown tremendously at John Carroll. And um, I think uh, John Carroll has utilized a lot of my different strengths. And um, yeah, but I'm at a point where I'm thinking it's almost 10 years. So I, I've been working here for nine plus years because my ninth uh, work anniversary was in August. It's, it's around that time where I'm like thinking, what what's next? Yeah. Um, Almost a decade under your belt. Yes. And, amazing. Uh, one thing that I, I should disclose is that uh, John Carroll in Cleveland was supposed to be a two-year gig. Wow. <laughs> yes. And um, starting on your 10th year. <laughs> but the neat thing is that every year has, I have witnessed a, um, amplification of my responsibilities and my responsibilities have um, been elevated. So it's not like I'm stagnant. I've never felt that. I mean, sometimes it feels like, oh my God, there's so much to do. <laughs> um, but um, not a lot of people could say that they've been able to grow um, and cultivate their positions um, 
And I think that comes from having mentors who are staff and also faculty who have been there for me and seen opportunities and recommended me to do things. And then me being like taking in the opportunity and saying, okay, this is how I could use it and how I could help students with this information. Thank you, Salo. And when you were saying so much to do, I was thinking of the current times. I mean, we've seen so much in the news, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, and just so much continues to go on. And I could imagine that now more than ever, your office is really, really busy. I mean, at the forefront of all these conversations, I read the Dolly Chug book this summer and participated in those. That was actually fascinating. I learned so much. Um, and on this podcast, we like to know how faculty and staff live out a faith that does justice. And your department's work in this current climate just really, for me, is uh, a testament to how one lives out a faith that does justice. But I wanted to ask you, what does, what does the term a faith that does justice mean to you? And how do you see your work with diversity, equity, inclusion fitting in? to this term and you know the larger mission of John Carroll. Yeah, I think that's what attracted me to John Carroll and as we've um, you know established a, an office of mission and identity and I've been able to work with um, um, Ed Peck and um, also been part of opportunities like um, the Jesuit Leadership Seminar at Loyola Chicago and learned more about what it means to be a contemplative in action. Mm -hmm. um, I think of the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion always requiring us to, requiring me to um, take a pause and first assess where I'm coming from when I want to do any sort of work. How does, how do my identities inform my decisions and what I think is important? Um, because I also, as a director, model that for my team and also the students that come to the office. And so a very important step that oftentimes folks skip is jumping to the action piece. And what's really important uh, is to first start off with um, at the center, because oftentimes that's what we can control is our attitudes and our behavior. Um, and then we sort of go out and um, I think that's where the interpersonal work is important. I think that's where I see diversity, equity, and inclusion work make a difference. Um, and that's where a lot of the attention around programming and services, but it's important to have both the work that's internal to us and also external in working with others. And then, of course, expanding it to the community and the state and the country and the world. Um, so for me, I see those as. Um, different uh, stages of one needing to be um, open to being a almost um, like you're navigating all of them. And sometimes it's easier to navigate the action pieces because you're able to cross off things um, really quickly. Um, the internal piece takes years, sometimes decades to um, make sense of how one was um, socialized to believe in, um, you know, the rights of who deserves rights, who deserves access to different opportunities. Um, that is difficult stuff to engage with. 
Um, and it's important to do that because it lives in our mm-hmm. unconscious. And so oftentimes that unconscious bias comes in in our actions. And so I think a faith that does justice requires us to, at least requires me to first dig deep into what are the things that I value and believe and which of those values are constructing the world that I think includes everyone and which are those that, which are values that don't serve the greater good. Um, And that often has helped um, be my compass in um, the goals of my office, the um, interactions that we have with faculty and staff and students. And then just personally, it allows for me to know the difference between um, just simple things like right and wrong. Um, And also um, it directs how I spend my time. It could be very overwhelming to try and resolve the world's issues. And that could often lead with burnout. Um, There's been several instances where I've experienced that because it is um, overwhelming, could take a lot of you um, in doing diversity work. And that's very common. And so um, I've learned to rest and not give up because oftentimes people do give up. It's easy to do that, especially if you have identities that are privileged to be able to turn off your, um, your social justice cap um, and not think about issues um, if they don't directly affect you. And so um, that's not good either. Um, maybe turn it off for a day. Like I, for example, two weeks ago, had to take Friday off. It was a Friday off, yeah. Uh, because I just was overwhelmed with um, responsibilities at work and also things that were impacting my personal life. And it sort of had this colliding effect like, oh, all right, I'm gonna fall to pieces right now and feel it instead of try to cover it up or not believe that it's there because that would then lead the, it's kind of like the shake can of soda example. You bottle something in so much and it keeps on shaking and shaking until you explode. Well, that's what burnout kind of, like for me, that's how it happens, Um, not sharing what's going on. And so um, I allow myself to sort of fall apart for a day and then rebuild myself up. And usually that comes from, well, being able to sleep, being able to surround myself with uh, friends and family that are supportive and also doing the things that um, fill my cup, Mm -hmm. so to speak, Um, because it can be very overwhelming. And so um, I think the best thing we can do right now with students, particularly in the office, is model um, that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to, you know, we're adults, I guess, we're older adults, and we're still trying to figure this out. And so um, it could be very overwhelming for a young adult to kind of see all these issues and think like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. There's so much, I can't do anything. I'll just not think about it. And I hope that we counter that by sharing like, well, let's start one place and then develop steps. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing, Salo. So much there. <laughs> I was like a comment on all of it. Um, 
um, I don't know, I wrote some stuff. I mean, just the, the your emphasis on taking a pause, I really resonate with. And you said, you just said the words, um, so often we just want to jump into the action piece. And that's so me, you know, and I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm struggling with that right now. Like, um, I'm not quite there yet. I haven't broken down yet, but I know it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's building and building and building. So uh, I need to take those, those little signals, those little signs um, and be the model. Like you said, you know, um, I think that's so important. So thank you for all of that. <laughs> what a great response. Um, I was curious to see and hear about, I mean, Anne McGinnis um, shared so many good thoughts about your interview um, about your immersion. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's okay with you to just share a little bit about um, what you did uh, yeah. and how it had affected you and your work. Yeah, and just to give a little background, we were interviewing faculty and staff and John Carroll um, as part of a research study that we're going to publish. We did, um, we had already studied alumni five years out to, to, ga to gauge the impact of immersions. And so now we're interested in, in, in faculty and staff that, uh, that accompany our students. So I was lucky to talk to Salo for probably an hour and a half this summer <laughs> in a really deep conversation. So just a little background for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I did participate in an immersion. Um, I want to say it was my second year, maybe or third year. I don't, I don't remember exactly the, the year, but it was a trip to um, Nicaragua, and um, so it was uh, a neat experience to be part of this um, uh, immersion trip because it's not service based. You're there to learn uh, not only the culture but also um, witness and experience um, the practice of fair trade um, and also the country's history and civil wars. Um, as a Salvadoran American who's first generation, my parents um, are not Nicaraguan, but El Salvador is very close to Nicaragua. One of the things that uh, in arriving to Nicaragua was um, just becoming the majority and um, the immersion group that I was with was predominantly white. And um, one of the first things I have always felt um, on campus is that when I enter a space, it's typically I'm the only person that's um, a person of color and also a person who identifies as queer. And so um, there was some concern about I had with going on the immersion as a queer Latino. Um, but in arriving, um, one of the first things you just notice is like, um, I've, well, I noticed was just that um, a lot of the people looked like me. And so that had been such a neat experience. Um, and I mean, the language piece was also, I do, I am bilingual. And so being able to uh, connect with our guide and also um, one of our first um, activities was to go to a market and learn how to use money and talk to the different vendors and I realized that the Spanish that I'm familiar with is very different from the language that is actually spoken so 
um, there was a, a big jump for me to become like a little bit less self-conscious and know that folks are, were just interested in getting to know me and my group. Um, the experience um, took place in Managua, which is the capital. And um, they took us on daily field trips to learn about different parts of fair trade, the history of also the country's civil war, which also um, mirrored some of the civil wars that happened in Central America. And a lot of it was uh, motivated by US um, politics. And so that also happened in El Salvador. My parents had to flee El Salvador because of the civil wars there in the 70s and 80s. And so while not my history, it was very similar to my history. And so this was also the first time as a uh, Latinx person going back to Central America. The last time I was there, I was five. So I don't remember a lot of that field, uh, a lot of that trip. Right. Um, so as an adult, um, it was, I mean, I was there for a job because I'm a chaperone, but it was incredibly personal because um, I was connecting with roots that were very similar to the ones that my family um, would speak of. And um, a lot of the history in Nicaragua was also similar history to the challenges that El Salvador faced. Um, we went to an UCA, uh, which is one of the Jesuit campuses in Nicaragua, which we also have one in El Salvador. And my, all my family went uh, and was educated through that university. And so to know that um, there's been Jesuit education in my family, like that's something else that I learned. Um, <laughs> Because I never asked to, you know, I never thought to ask my parents, like, oh, what kind of school is this? And it was like, oh, it's Jesuit run. Uh, I'm like, okay, so that's the universe winking at us. <laughs> wow. But um, I, I uh, after that experience, came back with um, a sense of responsibility to connect with my roots and also ask my family uh, more about what motivated them to come to the States and pursue opportunities here. Um, it challenged me to also think beyond me. Um, I think um, for myself, I was very US centric in the ways of knowing about the world. Right. Um, and so making sure that the, all of our decisions impact everyone. Yeah. And so um, in going up to, for example, where they um, grew coffee and picked coffee in um, Miraflor, um, it was such a neat disconnection uh, to what is, um, of all things, metropolitan. Uh, we didn't, uh, there was electricity, but, um, you know, it was my first time seeing stars in a very long time so bright and also being able to connect with folks over conversation and not in a living room with the TV running. And um, it also made me think of the issues of, um, you know, what's happening to our world because of um, climate change and how maybe different those coffee fields now look. Um, my family is still in California, for example. And so the, 
like the forest fires that are really impacting and having, um, you know, long lasting, um, just the damage is long lasting that um, it's happening also in other countries and has been happening for quite some time. And so um, the immersion trip really opened me to be much more, uh, I want to say maybe spherical in my thinking, thinking in different ways at once. Um, but um, yeah, it was, I recommend trips to students uh, and to staff and faculty to chaperone. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Salo, for sharing um, just all that about yourself and your personal life and background. Looking back at your immersion, if to name sort of the three most important things you learned from your experience, what would they be? Um, I think the top three things that I learned was the importance of knowing where you come from in your family, so your roots. Um, it's still something that I'm learning and you gotta sort of be intentional with this kind of stuff because it, I mean, I had, I was thrown into, not thrown in, I chose to be part of this immersion trip, but I didn't, I did not expect all of this trip to be life-changing for me. That was going to be life-changing for the students, but it ended up being sort of life-changing for the chaperone as well. Mm -hmm. And my co-chaperone, um, also, we both had a, such an amazing experience, and I felt very fortunate to have Marianne Hanacek as my um, co-chaperone, co because we were able to unpack a lot of the things that were happening. Um, so knowing your roots is very important, because I was able to talk with her, and then also I journaled a lot, which is something I really don't do. <laughs> um, but I think it was important for me to preserve what I was experiencing somehow. I mean, I have my camera, um, but oftentimes uh, my thoughts of what was happening and try to make sense of it really would happen in the evening after we had like had dinner and after we had our closing reflection. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, I gave myself homework. The second thing is to be more open and to um, really welcome sitting in discomfort. Um, that happens when you are a world traveler or just even a world traveler within different, you know, ethnic groups within our own um, city. And um, that is something I quickly understood because just because I identified, identify as Latinx um, didn't mean that I know everything that had to do with uh, Nicaraguan culture. Um, that was quickly, I quickly felt that with how I, um, you know, I am bilingual but the Spanish they spoke in Nicaragua was very different, yeah. uh, much more quicker. Yeah. And so um, I learned to be just okay with discomfort and to sit um, with it. It's helped me not just in my personal life, but also professionally um, to be able to sit with discomfort of sometimes, you know, students come to our office with a lot of concerns and oftentimes some of the concerns can be resolved because I do see our office as problem solvers, but some problems are so challenging that they don't have answers, right. ones that we can provide students. And so sitting with that discomfort and being able to share with students, 
let me find that resource for you. I think that became easier once I knew that, once I was on the receiving end of the discomfort. Um, the last thing was how welcoming Nicaragua was for me as a queer Latino. So one of the biggest challenges that I, um, growing up um, as a queer um, individual was knowing that machismo um, was a big part of Latinx culture. Um, and so, um, which is also what motivated me to leave um, and no longer practice Catholicism. Um, and so going to Nicaragua was very, um, it gave me a, a bit of anxiety, um, but I was welcomed with open arms by my host parents. Um, I came out to all of them. Um, and even the folks in, Nicar in um, Miraflor. And so it was neat to connect with our um, guide and also our host parents and them share with us things like, oh, they had just had their pride parade in Managua. Uh -huh. And so lots of like um, rainbow flags were flying. And, and to a queer person, that always is like a, a marker of like, hey, something, something queer is happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to learn more about it. Um, but it really opened up this, um, at that point, I don't know if it was the beginning conversation, but certainly a conversation around equal rights for LGBTQ plus individuals. And so that also opened me up to be more aware of what um, queer folks outside of the U.S. are experiencing. And of course, because my roots are Salvadoran, I wanted to learn more about what was happening in El Salvador. And so um, soon I learned that they, was having, they were going to have their first um, national conference on queer issues. And that's also happening in Nicaragua. So seeing that does give someone like me hope that, you know, the queer folks that are there, because they're LGBTQ plus folks there already, mm -hmm. um, that they have the same ability to, you know, be mobile in their professional and also life goals because oftentimes even in this country it's difficult to be queer um, and depending on the state that you live in here you do have certain rights and others you don't mm -hmm. um, in other countries it's illegal to be lgbtq plus and so it opened me up to be much more um, aware of issues outside of the u.s so those are the three things i took away from my trip um, I mean, there's so many others, um, but those are the three things that come to mind right now. So powerful. Thank you. Those are some amazing gifts. <laughs> those are three amazing gifts. And thank you for sharing that with us. I feel honored to be a part of some of the stories that you shared. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a ton of time left, uh, okay. and I want to respect um, everybody's time. But I, I wanted to ask a closing question, if that's okay. And mm -hmm. uh, it goes something like this. I think I asked John Scrano something like this, but if you can go back in time to give um, college solo mm. a word of advice, um, what would you say? Mm. So college solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I went to school at the University of California in San Diego, and this is in La Jolla which is like a beach um, yeah. city. And my major was visual arts. 
and I focused on uh, video and film production. Right. And um, one of the things that I did with my um, video and films was to try and understand, um, well, actually, I try to understand love stories. Um, there was lots of heartbreak when I was in college. And so a lot of the ways that I made sense of it was through my um, films and video. And so all of my stories are love stories yeah. and also bilingual stories. And so um, most of my films were in Spanish. And um, whenever I would present them to faculty, uh, they would always come back with, well, this should be um, dubbed in English so that an English-speaking um, viewer could uh, understand it. And some of them were so specific to Latino culture that mm. I, I felt like, well, the audience is not an English-speaking um, viewer. It's more, I think these were love stories for those queer kids that like grew up who were first-generation Latinx who were queer and a lot of those stories were um, oftentimes things that you suffered I suffered in like silence because I didn't share um, with my family who I was dating or whatever Um, but those films helped me kind of learn a lot about myself through storytelling and some of the stories were very um, a mix of not only like what happened to me, but also fantasy of what I wished would have happened. And I think College Solo, I would recommend College Solo to continue that now. Because after I left college, a lot of my video and film production, um, I didn't have time for. Um, I started working in film sets to produce other people's visions and other people's stories and scripts. And so, that part of me sort of, I compartmentalized it so that I focused on, you know, what gig I had at that point. And lots of these scripts weren't great, but they paid the bills. So um, one thing I would do different was, would be to continue those um, because I think they did a lot of positive healing towards me. I also connected with a lot of other students who were queer. and um, I think another thing I would want my younger self to remember is that um, I, um, that my value didn't just come from the things that I produced or my grades or the number of projects I submitted in, you know, and if I didn't submit something or if I didn't do well one test or if I got bad feedback or anything like that, that um, my value as a person um, um, wouldn't be diminished or eliminated or that I wasn't worthy of things like love and care Uh, because I did believe those things at times. And so um, one thing to connect both my immersion trip and my younger self was that I think that's, what capitalism does is to reduce us to what we produce and our things that we output. Um, And I think that's something that I'm unlearning uh, about myself is that my value, our value does not come from our labor. Um, It's not rooted in um, Mm. how useful we could be to um, 
an organization, um, we are valuable just because we are human to begin with. And Amen. so um, I think that's something that um, we need to model a lot more of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, of course, being at home right now, a lot of us are finding ways to add more work to our plates. And <laughs> I, I, I find that um, challenging because I, I find myself doing that and have to remind myself that, wait, I'm not a bad person if I can't get to two or three emails. I'm not a bad person if I can't finish a project right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm enough. I'm enough, you're enough. And um, with or without, um, you know, my production of things. And so it's a big thing um, to have to unlearn, I think. uh, But because our culture is so fascinated with what's next, what can you accumulate, what can you produce, um, it, it, it can be, it's counter to how we're socialized to make meaning of our value. So, um, so was- such a great lesson for our listeners. It, it really is. I mean, I was there in college and I think so many people are that if you get a bad grade, like that equates to being a bad person, which it's not obviously, but it's really, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. You're speaking to my heart, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had to that one. Preach. Let's go. <laughs> uh, totally. I was <laughs> just cheering you on. I know. Like, I don't know. Like, I was just telling our staff, um, like, every every September, October, it builds up, you know? And I was like, wait, I've made it through this before. And I've had to talk myself out of that exact same thing that you've said, like, I'm not a bad person for not responding to this email or getting this five minute task done now. Um, And that's like surprisingly so hard for me, you know? And like you said, I'm, I'm working on unlearning it and I'm working on um, working on convincing myself, like you said, that, that I'm enough (laughs) and my value still remains. Um, totally. And I learned the lesson when I was doing my PhD, I was probably like 28 years old. And when you start out, there's so much to learn. You're like, how could I ever take a break? I just need to work around the clock. And I tried that for a year and I was a horrible version of myself. And then I had this like light bulb moment, like, no, I can take half of Saturday and all of Sunday off. And, and that's okay. Like the re- the, what I do in the eight hours a day, Monday through Friday is enough, you know? Mm-hmm. and it, 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 it doesn't mean that my parents aren't going to love me if I don't do well in a certain class or, you know, but it, I was at a real low point in my life till I had to learn the lesson the hard way. Um, so, you know, I really feel, I feel with you there, the pain of that, mm-hmm. that, that lesson to learn. Well, let's close it up. I want to end with, um, um, something that you could say directly to our listeners, students, faculty, staff, alumni, um, and with all the lessons that you really, that you provided with us, with your heart and story that you shared with us that, you know, like, I'm, I learn so much from you all the time, you know, and I'm excited to learn more and build up of the foundation that you gave me. Agreed. Um, if you were to give our listeners a mantra um, for the week, what would you leave them with? 
I think a lot of us find ourselves at home and sometimes ex everything that's happening um, right now politically and socially and for those of us who are students academically, we might find ourselves feeling very isolated uh, and alone. And um, I think that we're not alone, but I think hearing that is important. Um, I think the use of social distancing was a mistake from the begin with, because what we're asking folks to do is physically distance themselves from each other and not to disconnect from one another socially. That's actually the opposite of what we want right now, need right now. And so my hope is that folks who are listening will, one, thank you for listening to me <laughs> and this interview. I appreciate um, you, know, be, you know, being asked to do this and uh, being able to share pieces of me um, for you all. And the other thing is to know that you're not alone. Um, that um, you might have a lot more people rooting for you than you know. And so moments like that, I go back and take a look at all those people who have helped me, who have motivated me, who have encouraged my growth personally, professionally, spiritually, um, and reach back out to those folks. And if you're finding it difficult to find who those people are, to reach out to folks like you two, like um, to reach out to your department, reach out to our department. Um, you're only a phone call and email away from making a connection, um, even if it's starting from you. Like that's part of our responsibility and job. And also many of us don't see this as just our job, but it's our calling. So you are oftentimes not, you know, a burden. So remember that. And so you're not alone, you're not a burden, and you deserve to be loved and cared for. And I think that's what I would like folks to leave this podcast with, um, is that many folks at John Carroll care about you. They want to see you succeed. Um, and... Um, yeah. Well, I can't think of any better closing thoughts for this podcast and these series of stories. I can't thank you enough for thank being with us know. today. And um, I think I look forward to collaborating more in the future because our, our departments are merging um, Office of Mission Identity and Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. So I think that your work on diversity and inclusion is going to filter through so much of what we do as well. So I'm really excited to learn from you in your department in the years ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. That concludes our podcast for today. Keep checking in for more stories and more journeys, um, more um, bits of wisdom from your favorite faculty and staff from our community. We'll see you next week.